There's no good way to sugarcoat setbacks. On the second anniversary of Vladimir Putin's all-out war, Ukraine conceding that its summer counteroffensive stalled and that in pulling back from Avdivka, its forces were badly outmanned, badly outgunned, with U.S. military aid seemingly stuck till November's elections and beyond. Nearly two dozen European leaders in Paris this Monday to try and cement a plan for picking up the slack. That has begun, but at what pace? A solid majority of Europeans still support Kyiv, but they also question its chances of success on the battlefield. And what next for Russia, as early voting in occupied parts of Ukraine begins for next month's re-election of Vladimir Putin? Moscow has the momentum, but does that mean victory for a country that's gone all in for a wartime economy? Today in the France 24 debate, we're looking at Ukraine's options. With us, Anastasia Shapochkina, professor of political science at the French Political Science Institute Sciences Po, president of the Eastern Circles Think Tank. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Uh, welcome as well to uh, Michael Benamou, the executive director of the European Defense Think Tank. Do I say OPY or do you, do you... OPY. OPY. There you go. OPY. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Anton Kozlov, director of the International Center for the Study of Eurasia, ICSE. How are you? Thank you. The, your reactions, by the way, on the hashtag F24Debate, Volodymyr Zelensky starting Ukraine's uh, second decade of war, if you count back to 2014, with a fresh pitch to leaders in Paris, saying he's still waiting for a lot of that ammunition that was promised uh, last spring back home. It's all about making do until more help does arrive. Yinko Yatade has the story. Just a few kilometers from the front line, these Ukrainian soldiers wait anxiously for their next battle. Weapons from the West that they were promised still haven't arrived yet, despite Russian attacks on the southern and eastern fronts. Their stocks are running out. Our warehouse used to be full of ammunition, hundreds of rounds. Today, there's only about 20% left. And deliveries are much less frequent than they used to be. For Ukrainian officials, the outcome of that scenario is clear. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Ukraine will likely lose the war without the Western arms needed to withstand Russian attacks. Kyiv is waiting for help from its main ally, the United States. Divisions between Republicans and Democrats has kept a $60 billion military and financial package stalled in Congress, putting a halt on U.S. shipments for now. During a forum dedicated to the second anniversary of Russia's invasion, the Ukrainian president said he had hoped that the aid will eventually pass through, but still made a fresh appeal for more assistance. Whether Ukraine will lose, whether it will be very difficult for us, and whether there will be a large number of casualties depends on you, on our partners, on the Western world. If we will be strong with weapons, we will not lose. We will win. It's a sentiment echoed by Ukraine's defence minister, who says half of all Western aid has been delayed. 50% of commitments are not delivered on time. So basically, if whatever was promised doesn't come on time, we lose people, we lose territories, allowing Russian forces to make gains. Zelensky says 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed in the two years of war. It's a rare acknowledgement of setbacks from the Ukrainian side, who haven't given an official figure in over a year. Uh, Anastasia Shapochkina, what, what news do you bring us from, from, from Kyiv about how uh, we saw it was a weekend where you had this big press conference by the president. 
Um, he, for the first time, gave a casualty figure. Some say it's uh, less than uh, uh, what the actual number is, 31,000 killed in two years. What, what are people telling you? Well, from what I hear from uh, our partners and friends in Kyiv is that, of course, there is an exhaustion for war. This is a mood I think that uh, a lot of people can agree about. Uh, we cannot talk about war fatigue here in Europe because nobody has really experienced war here. Let's just be clear about this. The only place where people have experienced war in Europe is Ukraine. And there, of course, people are tired because all of their lives have been upended from family structures to basic necessities like water electricity for you know, millions of people. But now nobody's talking about you know, giving up, really. I don't hear those voices. Maybe they, they exist, but I don't hear them. Clearly, on the front, the situation is extraordinarily difficult, but it isn't difficult because people are incapable of fighting. It is difficult, and the only reason that Ukraine is unable now to advance and to secure any victories is because it doesn't have the ammunition that, on which it depends on the West. So it is really the defeat of the West, and, it's, it's, and not just of the United States, but of the United States and Europe. And we cannot just write it off on the U.S. alone. The U.S. clearly is now, we're seeing, retreating, abandoning another, yet another partner. It's not the first time it's doing that. Probably retreating in the long run in, from the geopolitical scene really? into the self-isolationist policy, on which it was actually very keen on before World War II, which is more traditional for the U.S. than the last eight years have been, and which has been already, we can say, started way before uh, Biden or before Trump before him. So we can, we can really see already the U.S retreat from many theaters, theaters of war, and we see U.S. having dumped several partners in the space of the last 20 years. Now, Ukraine is another partner, but Europe is there. Europe has to pick up the slack. Europe has not done enough, and it is, we cannot just write it off saying Ukraine cannot fight. Right, I'll talk, let's, ask, let's talk about Europe and let's talk about the U.S. in a moment. Yeah. First, though, just your, your initial point that it's a question of, um, it's not just ammo. The, 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 the Ukrainians are also outmanned. There's talk about lowering the draft age. Do you see that happening? Yes, of course. That has been a discussion for the last several months. That has been a very contentious political decision, which is very difficult. Lowering the draft age is, seems now inevitable. People who have been very experienced fighters, who've been there in the front lines since 2004, most of these people have been wiped out or have been uh, not able to fight anymore because they are wounded critically. And now we're looking at people who are arriving. They are, most of them are going to be inexperienced people who are being trained by NATO, who are being trained by European allies. But there is men reserve. Yes, of course, if we don't give ammunition and we just keep, keep just letting men die in the trenches under the Russian attacks, which are well, 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 well manned and well ammunitioned, including by China, North Korea, etc., and Iran, then, of course, we are going to see no man very soon in Ukraine. But if the ammunition is there, it is going to be a very important change, game changer. You know, fighting without ammunition and with ammunition is two different stories. Michael Benamoud, you're just back from, uh, from Kiev a couple, mm -hmm. couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, what did you think about the... Uh, when people look at the prospect of a third year of all-out war, uh, and with uh, <clears throat> at this point in time, the the help slow to arrive. I agree with Anastasia. I think people are exhausted, but they are still willing to fight. Uh, that being said, the second wave of mobilization is not going to be like the first one. The first mobilization wave 
were uh, filled with voluntary people uh, and also a bit older uh, who knew about weapons, who knew about um, you know what the army, Cause, cause how the army uh, works. Correct me if I'm wrong. What is it? Twenty-seven is the uh, is the year for the now. Now it's going to be twenty-five. The 25. new draft law says twenty-five. Yeah, twenty-five. Sorry. Yes. Uh, before it was twenty-seven, but more than that, sociologically, uh, you know, you had people from. Uh, who had small businesses, were in the, you know, were working in the fields, for example, uh, and who knew the army, you know, who had a military experience. It will not really be the case for the second mobilization wave. It will be people from urban areas, from middle class, uh, educated, uh, who have no, you know, background in the military, no real training, which is why we are, as you said, training them very fast right now, and we only have a couple of months to do so. Right. And after the withdrawal of the Ukrainians, the Russians uh, this Monday taking a village, it's called Lastoshkini near Avdivka. Um, we could show you uh, images of uh, civilians last uh, Saturday. Oh, these are other images of uh, Olaf Scholz. We'll uh, talk about him in a moment. Uh, uh, last Saturday ca caught trains near to nearby uh, Pokrovska. Uh, the question now is whether the Russians uh, keep advancing or uh, there, there you see those images of uh, people catching the train uh, to, to leave. Uh, do the Russians keep advancing or will the front uh, remain uh, static? Uh, Anton Kozlov, um, we're talking about Ukraine's difficulties. How about Russia? Does, does Russia have difficulties? We're talking about it's got a wartime economy. It's getting all this ammo from the North Koreans, the Iranians. Is it, is it smooth sailing? No, I don't think so. I don't think so, because uh, clearly Putin, if you listen to what he says, and not only him, uh, people around him, they want to finish this war, but they want to finish this war on their terms. That is very clear, because he, well, he's going to have presidential elections in about uh, uh, a month, less than a month, but, well, he will win, we know that, I mean, there's no even point of doing that. <laughs> Election. But, but nevertheless, he keeps repeating that he wants to make sure that he's a legitimate president of Russia. And I think we're going to see, despite all those uh, uh, public opinion polls, when they say that there's 80% support, that Putin is still the most popular, and so on and so forth, uh, I think it's, first of all, I wouldn't trust those numbers. Uh, second of all, people are getting tired of the war. There uh, are, uh, for example, there's a movement of... Uh, 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 wife of those who were mobilized, who were protesting every weekend in Moscow. Uh, they are people are very unhappy about the death of uh, Alexei Navalny. Clearly, and Navalny, who, by the way, before he died, told people, "Go vote." Go vote for whoever is the best place to challenge the incumbent candidates. Right. I think they're going to announce the name, his, uh, his team, but clearly they do have a strategy to, to show their uh, uh, sort of support for Navalny and their discontent. Because there's Putin. all this question of whether or not Russians really know who Navalny is, how much they pay attention. Everybody to. knows who he is. I mean, I think it's one thing is do not listen to what uh, the news uh, or those official statements coming from Moscow. Second thing, do not believe to all those numbers coming from the official Russian ministries and, and news outlets, uh, because it's been all falsified like everything else in Russia. I think this is very important to keep in mind. And uh, people know who Navalny was. Uh, I'm not at all persuaded that Putin enjoys 80%. He probably does have a majority, but he doesn't have 80%. Uh, for sure. And also, they banned every uh, single uh, opposition candidate uh, from running. 
Uh, and so it's like it's Putin and uh, three of his uh, basically stooges uh, who are against whom he's going to look like a statesman because they look so bad, you know, that uh, he will appear as a, a brave gentleman. Anastasia uh, Shapochkina, the death of Alexei Navalny, do you feel as though it sort of remobilized public opinion in the West? Uh, I think that death of Alexei Navalny is just another in a long chain of events, of uh, monstrous events. And uh, what is important, I think, is to, right now, to me, it looks like in the West, the public opinion is one thing, but the elite's opinion is very what matters. Elite's opinion which decides whether to continue supporting Ukraine or not, both in, the, in Europe and the US. And that opinion, I think, is very much influenced by the current Russian narrative, and of which Navalny's death is part. Because it was a big is, survey done by the Everything is done in terms of the opposition is dead, literally, physically, here, look, his leader is dead. All of those little groups of mothers and wives, we're going to take care of them eventually, maybe after the elections, we're going to be doing things to, to keep them under control, etc. This is now the only kind of uncontrolled element. The mill bloggers now under pressure to kind of also fall under the party line. But, and it looks like Putin's control of the, of the situation, but I think that it's very important right now not to overestimate Russian capacity, just like it was overestimated in the first weeks of the war. Because having put your economy on the military rails, you're pretty much going back to the USSR model, where you're just, you function, your economy is functioning because you turn on the printing press. And then, you know, the, the, it depends on the price of oil. This is, we have already, we've already passed that. It's the scenario of the 80s. And there, if now we give this faith and we say, look, this looks amazing. They are fighting a major war. Their budget is doing great. They may able to militarize their economy and we are not. And also they are able to mobilize without any end. They're not threatened by anything. They're afraid of nothing. <clears throat> no, this is going to weaken the any possibility to resist and allow Putin to expand his effort indefinitely. However, if you look at the death of Navalny under the, the prism of internal politics. What does it tell us? It tells us that Putin was so afraid, is so afraid of whatever is germinating, whether it is Navalny in a strict, uh, uh, you know, uh, controlled prison in the, uh, behind the Arctic Circle, whether these are the few dozens of wives and mothers. He is afraid of that. He is worried of that. He is, it doesn't, it bothers him. And that means that regime is not as stable as we see, even though it's not going to be overturned, maybe, in a palace coup or under a, a revolution. But we should not just put our hands down and say, look, they're too strong for us to even lift our finger to resist. We have to keep resisting together with the Ukrainians and helping them resist. Because there were sev there's several uh, uh, Western media outlets this Monday reporting that uh, the West was taking seriously Vladimir Putin's uh, call for a prisoner swap, uh, Alexei Navalny for, right. uh, for uh, uh, a hired gun who's being held in a German jail. Well, I think it's not, well, it wasn't Putin's uh, 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 idea. It was the, the idea came from the uh, the people around Navalny, from Pevchik and, and maybe uh, Navalny's wife. And uh, I think there was a pressure on Putin. And I think uh, uh, Pevchik, uh, uh, Navalny's deputy, uh, today uh, uh, declared that, in fact, Navalny was killed because Putin didn't, didn't want him to leave Russia and to leave the prison. And he hated him so much that it became completely rational. That's why he was killed. And I think that sounds plausible to me, you know, because I think, uh, first of all, I'm sure there was a pressure coming from uh, 
you know, for people in the FSB, people in the military, whoever this classic of this hired gun was working for, I'm sure they wanted to get him out of the German jail. So I think Putin is a dictator, but he, he doesn't have this uh, complete monopoly on the decision-making process. So I think he decided it would be better for him to get rid of Navalny, if this version is true, uh, than to exchange him and let him go to the West and then destabilize his uh, power from the outside. Michael Benamou, uh, Russia, not as strong as it seems, but you also heard Anastasia Shabachkina say that uh, the West is not as uh, strong as it should be. Uh, most notably, she thinks we're entering into a new age of isolationism over in the United States. Do you agree with that? I think Anastasia is, is right. Uh, the U.S. has been uh, withdrawing its troops from Europe for the past 30 years, actually. Uh, in the 1990s, Americans had 300,000 troops in Europe. 300,000. Now they have 100,000 troops. That figure alone tells you what is actually happening. And, and this is something that you see in the whole, you know, across the whole world. A second figure I can, I can give you, which is not really well known. Uh, the moment when you had more U.S. military personnel in Asia than in Europe was not after Barack Obama or after Trump. It was in 2008. Actually, what Barack Obama did when he talked about the pivot to Asia was just acknowledge a decision that was made by the Pentagon before, by the, by the, by the bureaucracy itself. And so now we're just seeing the... But, that's, but that stands to reason. Um, the, South Korea is the place where those, those troops uh, arguably are needed uh, at this point in time, if you're the United States, not Europe, which back in 2008 was at peace. They see the future of their economy in Asia, you're right. They see markets, they see also supply chains, and this is why they're, they're putting uh, the, the pressure there, and also why they're sending their aircraft carrier there and instead, of, instead of Europe. Uh, I, I think we have to get ready for this. We have to stop being in denial, and the next 10 years are going to be about Europeanizing NATO, making NATO European. So Europe taking over NATO infrastructure, NATO bases, NATO Command and Control Center. <coughs> All right, and that brings us to what's going on here in Paris this Monday, a quickly organized meeting of 20 uh, leaders in the French capital. Um, they include, by the way, not just EU members, since the British Foreign Secretary David Cameron is there. And at the summit, France's president echoing what's long been said by Baltic states, that after Ukraine, NATO members who are part of the former Soviet bloc will be next. We can say that the consensus, the collective analysis, was that within a few years we had to get ready for Russia to attack all 10 countries. And so, very clearly, lucidity is there and the collective observation is that basically our security is at stake today. So first of all, that, that premise there, that, uh, uh, that uh, the Russians will somehow attack within 10 years a country like Estonia or Lithuania or Latvia? Uh, I, frankly, I don't think they want to get involved sort of in... Because you heard Anastasia talk yeah. about how right now uh, Vladimir Putin's made this switch to a, war, uh, to a wartime economy. It's very hard to switch back. Well, that's not true. That, I mean, look, I mean, in the 1991-92, they did change. They even had the... Uh, the, the program of conversion with the United States back in the early 90s. So they can do it. But, uh, of course, once you have a lot of hardware, tanks, missiles, blah, blah, of course, you have to either use those or sell them. 
uh, or just keep them, whatever. But I don't think they're going to, I mean, they may attack, but if they're going to attack, they're going to be a war between NATO and Russia. And I don't think Russia can uh, uh, win that war, frankly. So when the Baltic states say that they have credibly think that within 10 years is going to be an attack, is that the old adage, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you? I think that if the Baltic states are saying this, they may have it, this information coming from somewhere. Usually the only source of intelligence that we've seen adequate in the last few years, not in the last 20 years, but in the last few years, is the U.S. intelligence. They were the source of intelligence for the Ukraine war when the French and uh, German intelligence notably have been denying this intelligence. Uh, so now we are back to the same when I'm in Paris and we are trying, of trying so, so to deny the same again as we've done two years ago. And this is normal from Paris, but from, from, from Estonia it's much less, uh, much less uh, comfortable. And also Putin himself, if you read him, he's never in his, you know, for example, before the invasion, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in 2022, there were two months of diplomatic negotiations, preceded by the, what was called ultimatum by Vladimir Putin, which he published basically almost in the press. And uh, there, he never almost talked about Ukraine, really. Ukraine was on the margins of the document. The document was entirely dedicated to the review of the security architecture in Europe. He was talking about the, what we call Central Europe and the Baltics. He was talking about NATO consulting him on every move, every training in that area. And he was talking about NATO withdrawing all of their troops and weapons from that area. So that is what Russia was putting on the table before it invaded Ukraine. It did not talk that document about Moldova as much as we would love it to talk about Moldova. It never mentioned Georgia no, wait, as much as we would love it. was ridiculed by his own military personnel about this ultimatum. There is a great interview that was published right, you know, two days after, you know, the, the, the ultimatum was publicized, and and the, the general who who signed it, he's the head of the geopolitical uh, uh, research think tank. He's like a four-star general, uh, who who said that this this uh, demand is insane because we do have an agreement with NATO, which basically uh, uh, defines our relationship. We cannot just decide that we we're going to change. And of course, overnight. Russia has shown itself as a, as an actor abiding by all of the international no, agreements. It has signed. no. But my point is this. Putin may think whatever he likes, but there are people who will carry his orders, and it doesn't mean that they're going to do it the way he wants. That's, that's the bottom line. You think they're going to disobey his orders? I think he, they may, of course. Michael Benamou. Well, I, uh, what I find interesting about that statement, you know, uh, Russia might attack in 10 years, is that the closer you get to the east of Europe, uh, and the more the, the gap is narrowed. So the polls say that Russia might attack in three years. The Germans say that they might attack in five. And now the French are basically aligning themselves on, on that uh, threat assessment, saying, actually, we think it's 10 years. I think in practice, what we will see is that Russia, as you said, sir, will probably not do the same land operation again because uh, the cost has been tremendous for, for Russia. But they will definitely try to destabilize Europe with hybrid wars. They, you know, the Russians don't have to invade. They just have to make sure that the Baltic's economy is in ruin. And they can do that without attacking. They can do it via cyber attacks. They can do this via... Uh, threats. They can do this via sabotage, special forces operations. Uh, I think this is what the Poles and the Baltics and also the Finns are, are fearing right now. Kind of like what we're seeing in Ukraine. They control 18% of the country, but they've flattened vast parts of the front line. Is it already a win for <coughs> Moscow? 
I don't think that Ukraine has been really a win for Moscow because obviously lost one-fifth of its territory. That's a loss for Ukraine. But Moscow hasn't been really able to call it a big win so far. Like everybody's still still waiting for a win for Vladimir Putin. Uh, what I think is there are really numerous ways to, to destabilize Europe. I agree that can be hybrid operations, can be not hybrid operations. Really, you have missiles, you can, you can do anything and then let them shoot back. Who's going to have the guts to shoot back knowing that Russia can be crazy enough to shoot with a nuclear missile. That's one thing. And then second is, I know if you remember this, uh, just right after the Hamas attacks on Israel uh, on October 7th, about two weeks after, we saw General Secretary of NATO, uh, Mr. Stoltenberg, come out and say uh, publicly in front of the press that uh, NATO's warehouses for ammunition are empty. And it is a surprising statement to make as a leader of a military alliance. And if it is anywhere near true, we are looking not at an alliance which has, you know, well, let's say we have planes, we have tanks here and there, but what if that actual statement is near true? Mm -hmm. Putin is watching TV, I suppose. And most of this Paris meeting is about ammo. And it's about how do you meet the pledge that was given a year ago. The, Euro the uh, European Union nations have uh, delivered one third of what they promised. Yes, and how you can produce them, which we are not able to do because we are, we are not really started a war economy. You know, we have not really been in a war economy. But, you know, Russia is spending 8% of its GDP on defense now, 8%. We are still in Europe at 1.6% on average. What also this conference today is about is uh, how can we each year give to Ukrainians 40 billion euros because this is what they need, 40 billion euros. For the first two years... 20 billion were from Europe and 20 billion were from the US. Now that the US is kind of out of the game, it seems, how can we make up for the 20 billions that the Americans were, were providing? I think this is also what this conference was about today. Well, we've sort of seen a beginning of an answer to that. The Americans have what's called Lend-Lease, and we've seen these bilateral defense agreements, right, between Britain and Ukraine, and now yeah, between France exactly. and Ukraine, Germany and Ukraine, and they have strings attached, which is you buy our weapons. Basically, the European Commission is giving $12 billion a year to Ukraine. Then you have $3 billion from Germany, $1.5 from Norway, $2 billion from the UK, now $3 billion from France. And we're getting closer to 25 billion, 30 billion a year for Ukraine. But you still have this gap, you know, without the Americans of 10, 15 billion plus uh, America's production capabilities and, and also technological know-how that we, stuff that we cannot do in Europe, actually. And do you agree with Emmanuel Macron when he says that he'd like to see uh, uh, European defense and the helping of Ukraine mean by European produce in Europe? Obviously, I mean, this is France's position for, for many, many years now. We hope that, uh, and, uh, that, that uh, a lot of European countries are going to buy European more. Many in Eastern Europe still buy American because they believe that by buying American, that it will guarantee their protection. They see now that America's society is shifting and that whatever purchase, whatever, you know, whatever equipment you get from the Americans will not guarantee that America's society will we'll back you up uh, when the rain uh, comes. Anton Kozlov, if you're Czech, if you're uh, Estonian, if you're Polish, should you be buying American or should you be buying European when it comes to these? Well, uh, I think you should buy uh, both. But I think, first of all, I don't think America is uh, uh, backing out of this uh, situation. I don't think they're going to abandon Ukraine. I disagree with my colleague. I think they're going to continue one way or another. And one thing that you have to keep in mind, that there is a pretty important and powerful Ukrainian lobby in the United States that basically has been working since uh, 1945. 
to help Ukraine. That's one thing. Another thing about Russia and about Russian might, capabilities, and so on and so forth. One thing that I have to keep in mind, Russia is extremely corrupt. It works as long as Putin has the money to finance his uh, political base. As soon as he runs out of those uh, funds, it's going to collapse. But he's not running out. He, in fact, well, we don't the know. coffers are kind of full. We don't know. We don't know what's going on. Then, in reality, we don't know. I mean, I wouldn't buy uh, for one minute the information coming from the central bank of the Ministry of the Economy. Or whatever. We don't know. So I think that if back in those Soviet days, at, in the early Soviet days, and even after World War II, there was some kind of ideology that kind of you know was a glue keeping the system together. Now there is none. They do not believe in anything but money. So that you have to keep in mind, that this is a very corrupt, uh, very much like a South American uh, dictatorship of the 70s, you know? Uh, well, in, okay, so we mentioned <coughs> how uh, the French want uh, to buy European. And there are three big, big players in Europe when it comes to defense. There's the UK that you mentioned, mm -hmm. there's France, and then there's Germany. Uh, whose government is set to meet its NATO 2% of GDP on defense target this year. It'll be the first time since 1992. But 2% of what Germany's constitutional rules on balanced budget means that uh, it's got a smaller than most federal budget. Uh, and the question is, uh, at this point in time, Anastasia Shapochkina, uh, we're seeing sort of mixed signals out of Berlin, more and more defense spending, but not everyone's on board. Mm. Uh, yeah, the, the Constitutional Court in Germany is a big obstacle to many decisions on finance. That's clear. We have seen that in the last months play out very brightly. And now Germany, last, next, every time we open the business news now, Germany is really entering the recession period. That's very bad news as well. Um, but what is clear is the political will is there to take leadership on this defense, European defense kind of alliance, if you want, whether within NATO or outside. And of course, it's a French idea, which dates from the early 50s, as Michael has noted. But uh, it is Germany now, which is showing both by turning around its defense policy, its foreign policy, its priorities, geographical, and it's also decisions on military and budgeting, that uh, it is prepared politically to take that lead. Now, what it is going to translate to when it comes to budget, whether it's going to be amending its laws, uh, going around its constitutional court, I have no idea. That's really difficult. And however, we've seen impossible things for Germany, especially from new infrastructure on liquefied gas to mm. completely uh, turning uh, around its defense and foreign policies in the last two years. And I would not be surprised. So it doesn't take years Germany, and years if you've got the will. Yes, exactly. If you got the will, you're going to find the money, you're going to take the money from wherever needed and put them into defense once you understand that if you don't do that, everything is going to be destroyed anyways if you just don't have the missiles to put into the whatever Patriot or whatever air defense uh, systems you have and whatever other missile launchers you have. If you don't have the missiles, you're going to not have anything. The healthcare, the education, everything will be vamped around because we see when Russians come, healthcare and education get taken care of immediately. So this is, once the people realize that, and that's the whole question, what Michael raised, is the speed of realization of that. People who have experienced 
experienced it already. And that's why they are so, so quick to realize how bad it, it can be, because they've experienced it already in the Baltics. They've experienced it already in for Russia, Eastern and for Central Europe. And they know they don't want to find themselves in that situation again. In Germany, they've experienced it for half the country. In France, they haven't experienced it too much. Or rather, in the early 19th century, they've experienced it partially. But other than that, that's it. You know? And that kind of explains the length of the decision-making and the difficulty of the collective decision-making. But once... And if the printer, and I agree absolutely uh, with what Mr. Kazo was saying, the, what we know about Russian economy today is not what Russia wants us to know. It is that the printer is working, the printer is working very well, there is enough ink in the printer, that we know for sure. We know also that ruble is no longer convertible, just like the Russians have discovered rupee is not convertible really, and remember, not really convertible. But ruble is definitely not convertible. We have no idea, and please, I think the Nobel price should be given to a person who is able to tell today what ruble is worth. That's all we know about Russian economy. Let's really make it clear. Next time we read the IMF report on Russia, which projects how it's going to grow amazingly well at 3% per year next year, starting in the following years, five years, per percent per year. But you still have, you know... <laughs> yes, but they have not collapsed, you know. And, uh, Far from and, it. And, uh, and we believed, and many thought that they would, and, and, and they have not. That being said, That just I, reflects the lack of the understanding of Russia. I, Nothing I agree with you that war is the unknown, you know, by definition. And we don't know what will happen in the next two years. Uh, and the regime might be changed. Uh, you know, the population or, or perhaps the elite in Moscow might, uh, might do something against uh, Putin. I think, uh, I think you're, you're right there. About... Uh, Germany, they, they've made all the wrong bets, you know, over the past uh, 10 years. Uh, green energy, Russian gas, U.S. protection, Chinese uh, supply chain. Uh, now they're paying the, the price for this. Uh, but, you know, they will come back. Uh, and the, the thing I wanted also to say is that now we have to think as Europeans, you know. Germany doing bad means that we French or we Italians are, are doing bad as well, you know. Uh, this is not a zero-sum game anymore. Now this is union. This is about cooperation, making sure that we're strong together. And, and I think this is why eventually we will prevail uh, against Russia or against any, any threats is because we have that unity. As long as we have that unity, uh, we have a, you know, a, a certain mass capacities and, and there's no one that can really uh, take us, I believe. All right. But th there are outliers near Ukraine's border when it comes to that European family that you uh, talk about, Slovakia's pro-Putin president uh, and Hungary's Viktor Orban who last Friday lifted his last objections to Sweden joining NATO. That's when uh, Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson swallowed his pride and went to Budapest to conclude an arms deal with Orban to get Stockholm's uh, membership in NATO uh, over the line. Um, I guess he's being a little transactional there, the Hungarian Prime Minister. But uh, he, once again, he's managed to uh, make it more of a, uh, you know, have an outsized importance in, in this conversation. Can Europe, with these outliers, and also, by the way, with NATO member Turkey uh, exporting refined petroleum products, which we suspect come from Russia, uh, can, can, uh, can that European family grow? I think, well, uh, first of all, I think yes. And second of all, I would like to say one important thing. Euro uh, Russia is a technologically backward country. And with the uh, imposed sanctions, and with the European and American technological advance over Russia, I think it will take a while, of course, but uh, uh, I think we will see the result on the battlefield soon, maybe. Maybe not, but we will see it. Because I think uh, uh, Western technology is going to prevail over the Russian technology. 
Well, the Ukrainians are talking about homegrown technology at this point. Ukraine has homegrown technology at this point because we have, we, we have to just think about the country without a fleet to actually, uh, of actually disabling, completely destroying 30% and disabling about 50% of the Russian fleet on the Black Sea. And that's a country, Ukraine, which does not have a fleet. So it does have a homegrown technology, including water drones, for example, right, mm -hmm. right now. It has numerous types of other drones, including very cheap, repurposed, commercial-use drones, etc. Which, which we're starting to see on the Russian side as well. As well. And Russia has been scaling up very quickly and catching up as well. But what I want to say is that I definitely do agree with Mr. Koslov on this, is that what we have seen in the first year of war, when there was political will to give weapons to Ukraine and to improve uh, the level and the quality of those weapons and the range of those weapons, was that once the weapons are there, once the technology is there, Russian army, we have seen it, lose 50% of the territory it had taken just a few months before. Now, the moment the ammunition supply stopped, of course, Russia, just enough to throw in men in, without any end, give them, if you want, machetes. And if the guys in the trenches in front do not have anything in their hands, they're going to be killed with machetes. And this is just simple, in, look at Rwanda, machete were enough to kill people if the other people have nothing. This is precisely the problem. But if you do have technology, and behind technology, biotechnology, I mean political will, because everybody is able to produce, yes, you'll need to maybe repurpose the Renault factory and not to produce Renault Clio anymore or Twingo, but to produce a tank. Okay, that's been done in the past very successfully and we can do it again, but that requires political will. It doesn't require a know-how that nobody has. Yes, it may be not as modern as the US weapons and I think there's another point that you forgot to mention is that this NATO system, right, mm -hmm. is configured for the US production complex, military production complex, and then marginally for everybody else's production so complex. So is that what this brainstorms about in yet, Paris? Yet, I think that's a lot about that, about uniting people around European, thinking of themselves as Europeans and think of their defense as common yes. defense. And especially, I think what you just said, it really shows, Orban or no Orban, why if that Orban thinks Putin is such a close friend, why did he want to sign a defense treaty with Sweden, for goodness sake? Sweden being one of the weapons producers in the European Union. Mm. Yes. And then came the month of June and European elections were held and the far right did very well. Uh, yes, it seems that they are going to do well, uh, though uh, from what I've seen from the polls, you will still have that socialists, liberals and conservative majority. Because you know, it was a recent European Council on Foreign Relations poll, big poll, lots of yeah. countries, which said a solid majority of Europeans That's, back Ukraine. Yeah but doubt their ability to win the war. It, that coalition will probably have to do an alliance with ECR, which are more conservative, and sometimes some of them are uh, anti-support for Ukraine. Uh, I'm not going to give names of political parties, but yes. But you know, the, the huge majority of that coalition, you know, socialists, liberals, and conservatives from the EPP, will remain pro-Ukraine. But does that end the, so. all this talk about it, the, the uh, European project for defense? Uh, well, I mean, they will support this bloc, uh, will, and especially with the ECR coming in, uh, will probably support European defense even more. Uh, for example, they will support uh, a commissioner, a defense commissioner in Europe. They will support more funds, maybe not the 100 billion euros that Breton was asking, but perhaps 30 or 40 billion euros uh, from the European Commission, which would be great, by the way, because with 40 billion euros from the European Commission, Europe, for the first time, would respect 2% uh, of its budget for defense. Right now, the EU the European Union is at 0.7% of its budget for, for defense. All right, we talk about a prolonged war effort being an issue, uh, uh, even for frontline states with memories long enough to remember Soviet domination. 
An estimated uh, 160 tons of Ukrainian corn and grain spilled on railroad tracks in Poland this Monday. Cargo headed for the port of Gdansk. It's the fourth such recent incident as Polish farmers protest cheaper produce that they say is squeezing their margins. Polish farmers can't carry the burden for what is going on. If the EU has decided to open up its borders to cheaper products at our expense, as well as introducing the Green Deal, then we have to ask for compensation. This is kind of a microcosm, Anastasia Shapochkina, for what we, the, the conversation we might see come those European elections in June, because Poland's government squarely behind Ukraine, the new government. Yeah. And here you have farmers who are saying, look, yes, our lives aren't being lost, but our livelihoods are being squeezed. Yeah, I just want to remind, right, uh, the new Polish government, it's Donald Tusk, who went out and just exposed some of the farmers and their leaders, saying that they were paid uh, by Russia, actually, and they were not representing real Polish farmers. That's number one. Second, uh, if we're listening to, you know, whatever the leader of the Farmers Union is saying in Poland, and uh, who's maybe being engaged already by other interests, it's one thing. But if we look at the numbers, if we look where the Ukrainian grain is going, a lot of it's transi transiting by Europe to be exported to Africa, Latin America, and Southeast Asia. That's number one. And number two, when they're not only Polish plumbers protesting even today, continued protests in Berlin, uh, some of the tractors in, uh, sorry, in Berlin, in Brussels, I'm sorry, some of the tractors are carrying Russian flags, by the way, and uh, uh, very, very curious and really worth a selfie. And uh, then you have uh, the, some carrying Polish flags, as you're showing, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you think about the Italian farmers. I want just to single out Italian farmers who also are part of the crowd in Brussels. And you look then, you listen to what they're saying, how they're squeezed by Ukraine farmers, and then you look at the Italy's uh, grain imports and wheat imports, and you'll discover the result that a lot of it comes from Russia. That doesn't seem to bother Italian farmers at all, because Russia doesn't come at all in their conversation in Brussels. But there's this narrative mm. that, uh, oh, the EU's, this is what the far right's saying, that the EU is going to quickly let Ukraine into the European Union, and therefore they work for cheaper, and uh, the the goods they sell are cheaper, and therefore it's going to undermine everybody. Yeah, it's part of the far-right anti-free trade message. Uh, but again, you know, they're doing 10% uh, right now uh, across Europe, 10 15%, uh, probably in June. So that is still uh, manageable. And as you said, the new government of uh, Polish government of Donald Tusk is seeking compromise with, uh, with uh, Ukraine. So I think over the long run, We'll probably see a deal in terms of standards and how much Ukraine can import uh, its agricultural products into uh, into Europe. I'm not really worried on that on that front. We're talking about farmers, but it's more just the general feeling. Again, we're entering this this third year of all-out war. Uh, Anton Kozlov, public opinion, how fickle is it? Do you think? Well, I think it depends. I mean, public opinion is what, uh, well, I would say most people read or see on television, uh, read in their, you know, online or in the newspaper. So I think, I mean, I was always uh, very curious about, uh, sometimes, uh, particularly in the last couple of months, you find a lot of negative articles, for example, in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. I wonder, what's the point of doing those articles, you know, when there's a war going on, you know, people are fighting for their lives and you sitting in New York writing an article, you know, that uh, Ukrainians are losing, the Russians are going to win, Ukrainians uh, are, are, are corrupt, and so on and so forth. Yes, maybe, but this clearly turns the opinion in the direction of uh, supporting uh, some kind of Russia-brokered peace deal. 
right? So I think this kind of information, this kind of publication. In, Fra in France, you find quite a lot of this as well. Okay, but next month, Volodymyr Zelensky says he wants to go to Geneva with his, quote, vision for peace. And he wants to talk about it with other countries. What does that mean? Yes, but Zelensky's vision for peace, he's shared it time does and that, again. But does that sound like it's the beginning of overtures for some kind of settlement? No. Zelensky has shared his vision many, many times over. It's very clear. It does not suppose any uh, giving up of territory. There, is a, there, has, there have been regular summits uh, all over you know, the world and with different levels, and including high level from time to time, and regular discussions. So why, why announce that he wants to go to Geneva same. to do it? Now is Geneva. And before the summit was held somewhere else, and before there was somewhere else, and Zelensky has announced his peace plan long ago, and it includes first first thing is Russia withdraws its troops to the uh, and its weapons to the 1991 border of Ukraine, including the Crimea. Right now, it's martial law in Ukraine. Does it uh, matter yeah, yeah. the fact that yeah. there are no elections? It's supposed to be an election before March, normally, if there wasn't martial law. Yes, it will not apparently be, be the case. Um, and uh, yes, it, it's very difficult to organize an election when 20% of your territory is under Russian uh, control. Um, and yes, talking about a settlement is not part of, of Ukraine's plan right now. In the short, medium term, the battlefield is deciding for, for everything. In the longer, more medium to long term, is the US election uh, who will decide uh, what, what will be next. Anton Kazov? Well, I think uh, Russians just uh, today, I think, or yesterday, declared that, that they consider this uh, plan in Geneva as something that they will not participate and they will not take it seriously. So I think it's something that he probably does it for communication purposes, uh, to please the Swiss, because the Swiss wanted to hold, host that conference. I mean, there are many, you know, might be different reasons. But regarding the money uh, and the, the shortage of funds, I think we have 200,000, uh, $200 billion dollars in Russian frozen assets uh, that uh, there's still a debate going on whether they can, can be taken or used or whatever, but those are reserves that uh, are still there. So Excellent point. We, we agreed to use the interests of, of that sum, which we can legally do, but the moment you say that you can, you know, basically use that money, it means that you don't believe in, uh, in certain legal principles that, um, that are the base, the foundation of capitalism. And but so that, was the, that was true just about a month ago. But two or three weeks ago, the US has already passed the precedent, and it is the dollar which is the foundation of capitalism, not the euro, I'm really sorry. Yeah. And therefore, and the US has already passed the law, which may create a legal precedent, which kind of flushed that argument down the toilet, saying that, yes, we can actually confiscate that money. The problem is that it is only about, what, yeah. 5 to 15 billion? That's priming the pump for another conversation. Unfortunately, we're out of time for now. <laughs> Anastasia Shapochkina, I want to thank you. I want to thank as well Anton Kozlov. I want to thank as well uh, Michael Benamou for being with us. Thank you for joining us here in the France 24 debate.